0: I'm Meryl Streep, and I'm the president of the United States
1: in the movie. Meryl Streep has waited 71 years to say those words. Despite earning 21 Academy Award nominations for her portrayals of nuns, chefs, novelists, labor activists, newspaper publishers, magazine titans, Holocaust victims, cancer patients, witches, drunks, divorcees, violin teachers, and the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher... Meryl Streep has never had the opportunity to play the U.S. president.
0: A long time ago, Robert De Niro was talking about doing something where he was the first man, or you know, the first gentleman, what they call. So I would be president in that, and it was just a, a, an idea we were kicking around for a script, but it never really happened.
1: So Meryl's campaign stalled until Adam McKay gave her a call to play the leader of the free world in Don't Look Up.
2: I wanted someone who was like. celebrity, 30% savvy politician, and also utterly craven and without shame, but still pretty smart. She's actually quite smart as far as navigating the system. So I did like any other screenwriter would do. I was like, well, of course we'd want Meryl Streep to play this. And God bless her, she went for it.
1: This movie is a satire, so Adam needed her to be an exaggeration of the real thing. President Orlean isn't simply a stand-in for a terrible president. She's the stand-in for the whole system that enables terrible presidents.
2: I would say that pretty much every major institution over the last 30 years has, to some degree or another, failed us, except Taco Bell and the NBA. Those are the only two institutions that have held up pretty well. Taco Bell's gonna always deliver strange, hybrid, non-Mexican-Mexican food that looks really good in a commercial, and I have to try it once. And the NBA? Other than that, every institution is crumbling at a preposterous rate right in front of us.
1: And so Meryl Streep's president and her nepotistic chief of staff son, played by Jonah Hill, are stand-ins for our broken government. And Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett are vapid TV personalities. Stand-ins for a news media driven by ratings.
3: The thing I love about working with Kate is, like, she, she'll start going and then I'll, <laughs> I'll go too. I don't know, we just hit it off. It was like being tickled.
1: To find the funny and the absurdity of these institutions, at a time when nothing funny seemed to be happening in the real world, these actors had to let their comedic freak flags fly and embrace the Improv.
0: I was insane, I will say that, on this film. I was completely nuts.
1: This is The Last Movie Ever Made. Episode 3. Postcards from the End of the World. It's early December 2020. Winter has just blown into Boston, and so has the force known as Meryl Streep.
2: There is definitely a little crackle goes through the crew and the other cast, and there's definitely an excitement. And suddenly, every moment that anyone's having, they're not just setting the lights for a scene, they're setting the lights for a scene with Meryl Streep. Suddenly, a day player who has two lines isn't just saying they're two lines, they're saying they're two lines in a scene with Meryl Streep. We've all heard horror stories that come with some big stars.
1: Tantrums on set, rules about eye contact. So when an actor as huge as Meryl
2: Streep walks in, some might be bracing themselves. So what's funny about it is she shows up and she's a giant sweetheart. She's really funny. She's really down to earth. If it wasn't for COVID, you know she'd be giving everyone a big hug and... The first time I meet her at the production office, she walks in with her dog, which just right away, I like anyone who walks in with their dog.
1: Meryl used to be a method actor who became her characters, even offset. She quit this practice after The Devil Wears Prada. Playing the domineering Miranda Priestly made her unable to befriend her co-stars, leading to isolation and depression. But Meryl maintains a method-adjacent technique. To get in the correct mindset, she gives each of her characters a musical theme.
0: I usually have one thing that I listen to over and over, and it's sort of a mantra or something. Puts me in the space, the headspace.
1: For the hours, it was opera singer, Jesse Norman. For the River Wild, it was Brazilian composer, Eitor Villalobos. And for plenty, It was Fleetwood Mac's
2: Tuss.
1: But Meryl's soundtrack for Don't Look Up wasn't music at all.
0: The news! Endlessly the news. Because there was so much happening while we were shooting.
2: On this first Friday of December, the president is demanding that Georgia's governor overturn a Democratic election and just make Trump's
0: like Lindsey Graham are still not calling Biden president-elect, but they're saying he's likely going to be the president. I felt that it was like a civic responsibility to keep up with what was happening and to pay attention. And I still think that paying attention is sort of the theme
1: of this film. If that's the theme of the film, then Merrill's character President Janie Orlean is the one who's trying to kill that message.
4: Can you just talk about empathy with this
0: character? I'd rather talk about, not empathy with her, because I don't think she has any, but I wanted to talk about barrel curls.
1: All right, Meryl, we can talk about barrel curls. So let's begin with the hair. In his script, Adam McKay also began with the hair. His description of the president starts with, President Orlean has bright, blonde statement hair.
0: There was a moment in time, maybe seven years ago, where this hair sort of started to appear, That seemed really laboriously done, you know, sort of separated curls. And then the ends go like this. I really, really wanted to have barrel curls because I don't understand them. I don't understand the appeal. But now everybody has them. Every newscaster, everybody has them. And so I felt it was important that the president have barrel curls. (laughs) Because maybe that would um, make people like her more...
1: Now for the face. What would President Janie Orlean want to look like on Mount Rushmore? Makeup head Liz Bernstrom reports that Meryl asked for a taut facelift and extra mascara.
4: She wanted it to be an over-the-top look. Uh, The lashes, kind of like a a pageant gal. The lashes, the bold eye, the slightly overdrawn lip. Uh, The character is kind of completely out of touch with what's going on in the world. She's, you know, she's in her little presidential bubble and uh, very, very much thinking about Janie.
1: Janie also chain smokes. This is notable because no American president has publicly smoked in the White House since Lyndon B. Johnson. But Adam has decided President Orlean will embrace her bad habit. One of the first things he said to me was, and she smokes. I said, "Okay."
0: And he said, he said, she smokes defiantly. And people love her for it because it makes her her authentic. And the theory that the more of an asshole you are, the more popular, I guess. So I thought that was fun until we shot. And then that was horrible to do. And especially on cue when every time they say, okay, we're going to start again. And then you have to do it again. And there are these herbal cigarettes. They kind of smell like the mall, you know, those fragrance stores.
1: Barrel curls, mascara, foul-smelling cigarettes. Merrill is focused on the exterior of President Orlean. That's because President Orlean is a superficial leader, a celebrity who became famous for writing a best-selling book called How to Manage Your Money Even When You Have None. She is herself a hollow shell.
2: She's sort of this tough talk business advice lady. And we we sort of pictured her as being from Long Island. And no-nonsense, kind of kicking butt left and right, you know, unashamedly about herself, about her own brand. You know, someone who will talk about her own brand while talking to other world leaders about loose nukes or the climate crisis or international trade agreements.
0: We've become accustomed to loving horrible people. The anti-heroine is much less common The Devil Wears Prada is one of those people who's disagreeable, but she I understood more because she had such a burden on her. But President Orlean wears the burden of leading the country very lightly. She hardly gives a second thought to it. Uh, It's really about self-aggrandizement and power and self-importance and making a mark in the world. And if you do something, you know, along the way that
1: helps the economy, great. On December 4th, 2020, the 13th day of the shoot, Meryl Streep walks on set as President Orlean for the first time. Over her barrel curls, she wears a red, white, and blue trucker hat that reads, Don't Look Up. She's shooting a rally scene in what's supposed to be a packed stadium. Only in reality, Meryl Streep enters a largely empty stadium, with a small group of socially distanced extras wearing masks and face shields. They will later be duplicated and demasked by the visual effects team to create the illusion of a clamoring crowd. That night, it's just the frigid Boston winter and the snowstorm headed towards town. Meryl's lips keep freezing, making it difficult for her to say her lines. She's forced to take breaks to warm them up. The next night, Meryl appears remotely on a late-night talk show where host Stephen Colbert asks about her first days back on a film set.
0: I was so bad. I've been in this, you know, quarantine, and I'm, I'm totally alone. And my first scene was uh, entering a stadium full of 20,000 people as the president, my big face on the jumbotron in front of me. And I just, like, completely lost it. <laughs> What's it like
1: to shoot a movie? That sounds remarkably normal.
0: Not at all, no. They're meant to have a big huzzah, you know, make a big noise, but it sounds like... And the whole thing's so eerie and odd and disconcerting. And and we all have, of course, masks. At the last minute, you take everything off, and the lipstick is all (laughs) up here, and... God, I have to pull myself together for Monday.
1: On Monday... It's time for President Orlean to report to the office. That's after the break.
5: Hey there podcast listeners, our algorithms at Bash Media tell us that you're loving the last movie ever made. They also tell us that if you love this podcast, you'll probably also love another podcast, The Daily Rip. That's right, America's favorite on-screen newscasters, Jack and Brie, are making the brave pivot to audio and giving the people what they really want, another podcast from another celebrity, to keep your mind off that silly little comet. Recent episodes include Kate DiBiosky's Bangs, Cool or Corrupt? What's the Right Age to Get Your Dog a Cell Phone? And exclusive, Jason Orlean is finally ready to settle down and find the right girl. Enter the daily RIP Dating contest today. So go ahead and binge them all on the Bash Audio app. Which, you know, you should. It's not like you have all the time in the world.
1: It's still December, and winter has chilled Boston. Soon, a day of snowfall will double the city's record. There are ice crystals and beards and red noses on the street, even underneath the pandemic masks. Temperatures are warmer inside the hair and makeup trailer, on the set of Don't Look Up. Hair and makeup is usually a headquarters of intimacy, a trusted place where longtime bonds are formed between the actor and the cosmetician who makes a movie star look like a movie star. Mira has been joined in this trailer by J. Roy Helland, going back to her first New York stage appearance in 1975.
0: I've worked for 150 years with Roy Helland, who has done my hair and makeup for years and years.
1: But he wasn't able to join her this time. Patty DeHaney is the head of hair and makeup. Given Merrill's long-established collaboration with J. Roy Helland, Patty hadn't planned for someone to cover Merrill. So...
0: I had to go into the hallway in the stairwell and quickly call Liz Burns Truman and say, uh, "Guess you're going to be doing Meryl Streep's makeup." She's like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, and you know, we have a camera test in two days,"
4: which I was absolutely thrilled about. Who would not want to work with Meryl?
0: That person who comes in first thing in the morning, very early in the morning, and touches your face—it's an intimate. Uh, relationship, and she very quickly uh, showed me her her empathy and her
1: um, heart. Hours pass as Liz and Merrill perfect President Orlean's beauty pageant looks. With time, Liz feels comfortable opening up, and the two begin to really talk.
4: My aunt passed, who had already beaten COVID and then succumbed to pneumonia. So she, you know, she's essentially my mom. Two days later, my mother-in-law. And then, I guess it was probably like seven or eight days after that, my aunt. So there were four deaths in two and a half weeks. I was like, God, this is, this like a black cloud over me. Maybe I should just, maybe I just need to step away. And we had gotten this far as writing my letter of resignation. <laughs> and that night I got a message from from Merrill that stopped me. She wrote me the most lovely letter. Sorry. <laughs> Basically gave me permission to continue and I think it was the best choice.
0: I know myself that you know when when this the earth moves under your feet, and you, you feel, like falling down. It's good to have something, um, that matters to hold on to—a little life raft—and um, that's that's true. You you can, you can work your way out of it
1: and through it and up over it. Liz decides to stay and finish the film. Later, Meryl surprises her again with her kindness.
4: I don't know how she knew, but. I was not expecting her to make such a big deal of my birthday. (laughs) And I came into her trailer to um, get her ready for the day. And there was just gigantic bouquet. And I thought for sure it was some, you know, it was from production or, you know, somebody in her camp that had sent it. No, it was for me. (laughs) With a handwritten note. And a beautiful bottle of wine.
1: Soon, Meryl must leave all her empathy behind and shoot an important Oval Office scene as President Orlean.
2: I am here on set. We are in the uh, Oval Office doing a camera test. I'm here with Stacy. You can. Uh, I'll shut up for a second. Maybe you can hear the slight din of chatter and work. I always love when like radio shows do that when they're like, <laughs> we're in San Paulo, and then in the background you hear like, but yeah, we're on our kind of makeshift soundstage, surrounded by a fake White House. Over to our right is a fake Situation Room.
6: Is this White House similar to the White House on Vice?
2: It is. I mean, they're both. Accurately modeled on the Oval Office and the White House. Okay. However, we did make this one about 10% bigger because of COVID. And then we have a different president who's in here. So, in the case of George W. Bush, that was a real White House that we were trying to get exactly right. In this case, it's President Janie Orlean. Mm-hmm who's her own fictional president, so we're trying to represent that character as we imagine it. So then you look at all the other presidents, you know, it's surprising. Obama had pretty extreme wallpaper. It was like bright yellow with stripes. (laughs) I was really surprised.
1: In the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, by the American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman, published in 1892, yellow wallpaper symbolizes a woman driven mad by the patriarchy. To Obama, it symbolized a man aware that his very presence was breaking tradition, What will President Orlean's Oval Office decor say about her? That question must be answered by supervising art director Brad Ricker.
7: There are these sort of uh, neo-fascist-looking empire sort of uh, side tables. And, of course, in the script it says that President Orlean has really kind of made her name by writing a a sort of self-help financial advice book, and those books are everywhere. So she has filled the bookshelves of the Oval Office with her bestseller,
1: In school, Brad studied art, film, and architecture, which you might expect. However, Brad also took classes in semiotics, the study of signs and symbols, which gave him ideas he later used in films like Inception. The design for President Orleans Oval Office has its own symbols, grim images of white colonizers, slaughtering the people whose land they were intent on stealing.
7: And then in the corridors outside, there's something a little ominous about some of the art. Like there's a lot of... Art of Native Americans. It's sort of like this is an, an administration that's really going to screw everyone. Luckily for President
1: Orlean, and unluckily for America, she has role models, previous presidents who also screwed her for the country. Portraits of these men adorn her walls, much like posters of heartthrobs in a teen's bedroom.
7: The portraits that are shown are kind of from the worst presidents of the United States. Harding and Jackson and Nixon. It's kind of a rogues gallery of presidents. There's actually a portrait of Cheney in there too, opposite the portrait of Bush, since he sort of shared responsibility for that wonderful administration's uh, decisions.
1: This last bit of set design is a not so subtle way of signaling that, just like in the real world, this fictional story will hinge on disastrous choices made behind closed doors.
2: If you were in a movie and there was a comet that was going to hit the Earth 30, 40, 50 years ago, it'd be pretty clear what would happen. I mean, you would go to the government. They would then call in the joint chiefs. They would call in scientists. It would be released by the press, who has a very clear function as the fourth estate of our democracy and for the planet to inform the people. And you would get to work on the problem. I mean, you can even see it in the movie Armageddon to some degree. That
1: 1998 asteroid disaster movie, where Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck save the day, is the spiritual antithesis of Don't Look Up.
2: I would argue that our depiction of what happens in this movie is much more accurate to what would happen which is political infighting, people looking for the profit motives, celebritizing people, conspiracy theories, contrarianism to try and gain power.
1: Unfortunately for Jennifer Lawrence's character, Kate DiBiosky, she's in Adam's movie, not Armageddon.
8: Kate has never been a fan of Orleans presidency, but I think she goes in with hope. You know, I think when you see something so scary and you're faced with something, So diabolical, you're obviously just hoping that there's going to be an adult in the room. And like, okay, I don't agree with most of her policies, but she is the president. She's got missiles. She's got, she's going to have the answers. But this is not one of those movies.
9: Anna mentioned that once Kate and Randall, which is Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, head towards Washington, D.C. to meet with President Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, that they were leaving the real world and heading into a journey that became a journey into Hades. And of course, Hades is hell. And as soon as he said that, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have Meryl Streep in her first big scene with Randall and Kate be wearing the color red? Because of course, red is most
1: definitely the color of hell. On their way to hell. Thank you for that description, costume designer Susan Matheson. Astronomers Kate and Randall are joined by a third scientist, Dr. Teddy Oglethorpe, played by Rob Morgan.
10: Dr. Teddy Oglethorpe, head of planetary defense at NASA. And my job is to clean the junk in outer space. And I take my job very seriously. No matter how many people may think the job doesn't exist, it's an actual job, damn it.
1: The Planetary Defense Coordination Office was founded by NASA in 2016 to track hazardous comets, by which they mean any comet larger than a basketball court that could be headed our way.
10: While we were shooting it, you know, I'm doing all my research for the project and I find out about this Arecibo satellite in Puerto Rico, and it's one of the main satellites that's responsible for identifying space junk so that I can do my job, my planetary defense coordinating job. When we were shooting, it was broken. It might still be broken, I'm going to be real honest with you, meaning we're really vulnerable for what this film is expressing right now in real time, real life, as much as we find it far-fetched. So, yeah, it was just uh, very interesting at how art imitating life, life imitating art we were really in while we were making this movie. So that's what was hitting me at the same time. And I actually tried to use that as part of my character motivation, man. Because it was just, it was real. Like, it was like, man, this could really happen right now.
1: And so Rob channels this chilling fact into his character and anchors the trio with Jen and Leo.
2: I always thought of them as representing kind of the three sides of our responses to anything like the climate crisis or the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. which is the weathered bureaucrat who's Teddy, who's seen everything, who's almost kind of incapable of panic. And then there's Kate Dibioski. She doesn't get the game at all. And even when she starts to get it, she still thinks it's B.S. So she doesn't want to even play it. She's just going from the natural instinct of, hey, we're all going to die. Let's just talk about it. And then there's Dr. Mindy, who represents all of our neuroses. He's the definition of a reluctant hero. It's finally time to shoot the movie's big Oval Office scene.
1: Jen, Leo, Rob, Jonah, and Meryl in one space. They start with Meryl chatting on the phone as the scientists enter her office. What does the president find more important than the fate of the world? Pretty much anything, Adam McKay tells her.
0: Just says, okay, just say anything, pick up the phone and then you start the meeting. But he didn't care how long it went on.
1: So she did, for over 30 takes.
0: Yeah, well, the results are what? Oh no. Do I have to take an antibiotic again? Okay.
1: I know I'm
0: slowing down, believe me. How many
8: partners? Are you judging me? I'm the president of the United States, you fuck. The first moments working with Meryl Streep are, oh my God, I'm in the same room as Meryl Streep. I'm in the same movie as Meryl Streep.
10: I was calling my manager like every day, like a little little fanboy, you know, just like, wow, you should've seen what she did today, man. Oh my God, she's amazing.
8: And then watching her improv is incredible. You don't want implants. I know I had them, but I had them taken out. That look is over, you know? I didn't expect that. <laughs> it was just, she was hilarious, and her, her comedic timing, even just by herself, talking to nobody on the phone, was I mean, she was better at it than comedic actors.
6: <laughs> Every single time she had this whole story.
8: Yeah, I could make
0: that happen. I could make that. happen. you learn English, you know. It's so cute. <laughs> Sh- shut up. Shut up.
6: I got I got, I got I got people here. Okay. I love you. Bye. And at the end she goes, "I love you. Goodbye." And it's like, who is she talking to?
2: I was in Chicago and did improv pretty much full-time for five, six years, and I don't think I could do that. 30, 35 different phone calls, every one of them a complete idea.
0: Sometimes he'd say, go back to that thing that you did before, and that was when I would hit a wall. I would say, what thing that I did before? He said, you know, where you're talking to the cabana boy, and... I had no idea I was talking to a cabana boy on the previous take, but apparently I was.
1: <laughs> Sadly, none of that will make it into the final cut of the film. But the improvisational energy on set that day was in motion, and flowed into the dynamic between her and one actor in particular. Jonah Hill is so
0: brilliant. He played my son, and I just, I felt like with my own kids, I couldn't keep up with them. how many... Uh, the world is ending me- meetings that we've had over the years economic collapse loose nukes car exhaust killing the atmosphere
11: rogue AI drought <laughs> famine plague uh, <laughs> alien invasion uh, population growth home the ozone
0: Jason hey read the room for once in a while. sorry mom
11: getting to see Marilyn Jonah in the White House ignore this issue and and divert it and talk about incredibly Shallow things, while we're we're trying to explain to them that the world is ending, was genius. Um, Adam set a tone where anything goes, and um, the sort of more ridiculous and unhinged that the president and her son were, the more our characters were perplexed. And having worked with Jonah, uh, putting him in a room with with Meryl Streep and watching their banter together was was absolutely incredible.
1: In their scenes together, the improv takes over. Marilyn and Jonah are in the zone, fully inhabiting their self-absorbed characters.
11: They portrayed them as completely unhinged, absolutely undependable leaders, which was a huge motivation for Jen and I for the rest of the film.
8: I got really heated on that and kind of took it to like a 10, you know, and, and was angry. And she looks up at me and looks dead in my eyes and goes, are you talking to me? And I was like, oh, oh, I just felt my blood run cold. That's what one of the coolest parts about my job is like uh, the adrenaline rush that, that you can get. And then she called me a cunt. I actually don't have a diary, but I came home and like wrote on my computer and was like, dear diary. <laughs>
0: I think we're all a little bit out of our minds right now, and um, that was why my way of manifesting it to just uh, go nuts.
1: To be in the middle of a scene having a fake fight in a fake Oval Office was, for these artists, a return to sanity. When the camera was on, everyone entered a world threatened by a deadly comet, not a contagious disease. It was the most normal thing anyone had gone to do in eight months. Until Adam called cut.
6: We're watching The Oval Office. It's like the good old days, you know, where like things are normal. And then we cut. And then all of a sudden the hair and makeup team comes in. All the people come in to do the stuff they have to do. And suddenly it looks like a hospital.
1: Later that week, this blink-and-you'll-miss-it transformation from movie set to hospital takes a more literal turn. While on location, shooting at the D.C. Convention Center in Boston, co-producer Stacey Roberts-Steele a.k.a. Swiss Army Knife, records an audio diary. She's very aware that there's no room to delay filming because tomorrow, the city will turn the space into a field hospital as COVID numbers outside of the Don't Look Up bubble continue to
4: rise.
6: So, quite a turnaround. Um, On a personal note, I'm trying to keep it together today. It is my birthday, which should be a happy day. But I'm just having trouble because my dad died three weeks ago, and I—I I don't know. It's weird. I feel like I've um kind of been so removed from it outside of like the first few days of after we found out that he had passed, and I um. I don't know, I'm just kind of plowing ahead, but for some reason on my birthday, well, for some reason, I know why, but on my birthday, it's been a little hard today. Um, So I'm hoping they don't sing me happy birthday. (laughs) Um, Every time someone says happy birthday, as nice as it is, it feels like a little, um, just, uh, I don't know, it's just a little, it's a little tough today.
1: Stacey has had more than her share of difficult moments during production, Last episode, we heard her struggle to celebrate Thanksgiving over Zoom with her young daughter, Frida, who spent most of the video call in tears. But like Marilyn Liz, Stacy finds comfort in the distraction of work. And so she goes to the costume department for a fitting. For today, Stacy's not merely a producer. She's an actress. Adam often uses her to read with actors during auditions and likes to slip her into his movies. Her part in the big short got cut, but Stacy's determined not to be cut from this movie. So she's chosen to play the assistant to a big baddie in the film, a tech CEO played by Mark Rylance. Costume designer Susan and her co-designer Elaine Perlman fuss over Stacey's outfit until it's exactly right.
9: I do become a little bossy in fittings. Someone told me I was like a sergeant major in a past life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was a sergeant major mixed with Mary Poppins. Like, should we be squishing the boobs down? The blouse is Meaning- looking like hell. I don't like it at all. It's just like poop color.
6: Is poop color? Yeah.
9: Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. You don't okay. want to see that on you. The color with the Saturn satin is that you look like you're in Saturday Night Fever. It's very black. You look like you're working as the dominatrix on the side. Okay. I know, I'm driving Elaine crazy, but that's what I was born to do. You know be. I only have like three lines, right?
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, it doesn't matter. I drive, her, I drive Elaine
9: crazy every day because I obsess on every person. It doesn't matter if you've got one line or you're the lead, right?
6: <laughs> Mark McFrylan's is out in the hall. Like, What's taking for? We found the top.
9: Okay, so it's going to be a Brora 100% cashmere sweater, or as they say in England, jumper. It's a jumper, Stacy, from Scotland. It's a jumper. and the jumper is what is the winner. Let's put it on the body. Oh my God, so send you off for hair and makeup now with Patty
5: and Liz. Love it.
6: Okay, okay. au revoir,
9: okay. I, miss, Thank I you. wish you I wish you bon voyage. <laughs> and I wish you all the best.
6: Your work is done here.
9: That's right. Good riddance.
1: With filmmaking comes stress, and with stress comes wine. Executive producer Jeff Waxman is drinking a glass of Cabernet in preparation for the work ahead. Jeff was never much of a drinker, until a few years ago while filming John Wick 2 in Italy, where he fell in love with red wine. It's week nine of the shoot. He may be home after a long day, but he's still hounded by nonstop work emails and phone calls. So simple tasks end up taking longer than usual.
11: So, 9.14, it took 12 minutes to pour wine. So that's good.
1: (laughs) The Oval Office is wrapped. Now to create something completely different.
11: This week, the rest of the week, we're at the Daily Rip. Yeah. Which is a morning show that we created. We built it from scratch because we couldn't shoot in a real studio. So, we have many people that have worked really long and hard to build it. So, I can't wait to see it.
1: In the world of the movie, Jen and Leo's astronomers leave the White House without any help, so they must turn to the media. In the world of the production, the cast and crew must travel to an unlikely place in western Massachusetts to shoot those scenes. Here's producer Kevin Messick.
2: Our production designer, Clayton, has a knack for figuring out what locations really lend themselves to the sets that we need. And they're not always what you would think. And in the case of The Daily Rip... He found a uh, Nissan or a Subaru dealership that uniquely had a great vibe and a great kind of the bones for what a TV morning show set would look like. I don't think anybody would have imagined that the car dealership that he
11: found would be turned into this amazing set for Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry.
1: All right, we're 20 out. Let's uh, make sure that our eye lines, that we're not looking at Jack and Bree, please, all right? And cue the package. Where there would normally be shiny vehicles with price tags, there are now giant TV screens that wind around the set like a coiled snake. In the center is a large stage with a white desk, white chairs, and coffee mugs that read The Daily Whip. If one breathes deep, they can still catch a whiff of that new car smell. This is where hosts Brie and Jack, played by Cate Blanchett and Tyler Perry, will hold court. Brie and Jack are very frivolous and very popular. They are not built for the message that astronomers Kate and Randall
2: need to send. I have friends of mine who work in television news who have just nakedly told me, like, it's really hard for us to cover the climate emergency because our ratings go down when when you do. And I was like, do you understand how insane that sounds? Like, um, so that's the daily rip. Okay, well, as
3: it's damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey? It's my ex-wife's house. I need it to be hit. Can oh, we make that you, happen? I will, but in all fairness, I actually paid for the house.
11: I'm so sorry. Tyler and Kate already seemed like that. Uh, they had that amazing talk show dynamic where they had been working together for, you know, decades. They had this banter. They had, they improvised a lot of their jokes together. And it just made, I think, the both of us feel completely out of place. I I don't know how much they rehearsed beforehand, but I just remember it being an an incredibly realistic dynamic. And they were so locked into their characters that uh, it was just pretty amazing to witness jack in particular just trying to get through the day
3: just trying to make the show just trying to get through the segments you know he gets whatever he makes on these on this show and that's what his focus is he doesn't really care is there a comedy is there not a car who cares i just want to get out of here and go get my hot tub and my jacuzzi you know i remember dan rather talking about that moment where where news started making money and i think that that's the space in which Bree avante lives she comes from money, and she knows that sometimes you need to bend the truth a little to to keep people's spirits up and entertain them. And um, I think as soon as you enter into that world, you know, the very facts that that Fox can get away with all of these li- libelous things because it's it's an entertainment channel.
1: As an aside, keep Blanchett's right. While the FCC regulates that broadcast channels, meaning ABC, CBS, and NBC, cannot air false news that may cause public harm, This limitation does not apply to cable networks. This limitation also does not apply to actors who are pretending to be cable news hosts. So Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett are free to improvise whatever the hell they want without getting sued.
3: And wrongly convicted murderer Michelle Weems talks to us about her controversial third-place finish on Celebrity Dance Off. So
1: controversial. I thought she would have won.
3: I really did. Yes, well, I still think she's guilty.
1: Adam told Tyler Perry to model his character
3: on actual television hosts. He he started talking about, you know, he's a cross between um, Michael Strahan and Joe Scarborough and Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper.
1: Adam assumed that Tyler would simply watch these men on TV.
3: And I'm like, okay, well, I know all these people, so let me call them. And uh, and, and I actually sent them a a little bit of the copy. I said, can you read this on tape and send it back to me? And... uh, Joe and Mika did, and so did Michael. And I was like, okay, I think I got it. Adam was like, you did what? No! Oh my God, please. I hope they I hope they weren't insulted. I was like, no, these guys have great sense of humor, so they get it.
1: Kate Blanchett watched a lot of TV and suffered for
3: her art. I've watched a lot of television news, which I find really, uh, it's like being, for me, it's like being beaten over the head with a, Oh, I don't know, with a with a cross between a salami and a brick.
1: Yet these are the salamis that Leo and Jennifer's astronomers must turn to for help.
11: Here you have two scientists that are incredibly unmedia savvy, trying to articulate in great detail to the world that we're doomed.
8: They don't want to believe that I'm right. They'd rather just believe that I'm crazy, um, and then we can go on about our lives as normal before this crazy redhead started telling us we were going to die. It's just maddening, you know, to be screaming into the wind.
2: We're living in a, in a really harsh, tangible, 90 mile an hour wind shitstorm. So, (laughs) and I think what we're trying to do with this movie is we're trying to laugh at it too, on some level. I think we have to. We're all going through it. Every side of the political, religious spectrum that you can think of is experiencing this same insanity that we're living through. So the hope with this is that we can, at least for the course of this movie, for you know a little over two hours, get on the same page and all laugh about just how insanely crazy it's been for 10, 20, 30 years.
1: Coming up, what's a catastrophe without a charity single? Could we have a song that starts where it feels like a love song, and then as the song evolves, at a certain point, you realize that it's actually really about the end of the world?
4: Ariana sang her part, and the next thing I know, Kit Cuddy was there, and I'm like, oh my god, we're done! There it is! There it goes!
1: But as Murphy's Law would have it, the Don't Look Up team will end up having to film a pivotal scene just as the most dangerous threat to U.S. democracy in a lifetime is striking the country.
9: I was busy placing a feather piece on Ariana Grande, and Ariana calls her mother, who explained to us what was going on in Washington,
6: D.C. I left my phone for a few hours, and I look back, and the country's fallen apart again.
1: That's next on The Last Movie Ever Made. The last movie ever made is a production of Netflix Film, Hyperobject Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Emmanuel Hapses, Gabrielle Lewis, Stacy Robert-Steele, Daniel Waxman, Sophie Bridges, and Alexis Moore. Our editor is Darby Maloney. The show's narrated by Emmanuel Hapsis. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Hannes Brown with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The show is written by R. Roosevelt. Fact-checking by Charlotte Gadu. Executive producers at Hyperobject Industries are Adam McKay, Harry Nelson, and Claire Slaughter. Executive producers at Pineapple Street Studios are Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Don't Look Up is streaming now on Netflix. Follow at Netflix Film on Instagram and Twitter.